Jeremiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1, it says, Against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad, and his people dwell in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro from the walls. For Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and his princes together. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against me? Behold, I will bring Fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all those who are around you. You shall be driven out every one headlong and no one will gather those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon or Ammon, says the Lord. The final chapters of Jeremiah consists of a series of prophetic judgments against the surrounding nations of Judah and Jerusalem. In chapter 46, we looked at the prophecy against Egypt. In chapter 47, we looked at the prophecy against Philistia. In chapter 48, we looked at the prophecy against Moab. And now, in chapter 49, there's a series of prophecies against Ammon in verses 1 through 6. Against Edom in verses 7 through 22. Against Syria or Damascus, Kedar, Elam in verses 23 through 39. In chapters 50 and 51, we're going to look at the prophecies against Babylon. Now, Babylon is mentioned in the Bible some 800 plus times. In the book of Jeremiah alone, it's mentioned 168 times. And if mention is anything indicative of of importance, then we should pay close attention. Now, the conflicts of the past sometimes give us a window into what the conflicts of the future might be. And the Bible teaches that God will judge the world because of sin. God is in charge of history. God is in charge of the future. And so let's listen to the Lord's message to Ammon. Verse 1, against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in the cities? James, if you can, put the map up that we looked at last week again. And you can see the, the people groups that surround the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. The little red that you see is Philistia. Down at the bottom, you see Edom. Towards the north, you see the kingdom of Moab. And if you keep going further, you see the Dead Sea and you see the kingdom of Ammon. You see Rabbah and you see... Um, the Armenian tribes to the right and you see to the left 
As you keep going, you can see the River Jordan up there, that little body of water is the Sea of Galilee, the little body of water at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Now, you can see the kingdom of Damascus up there. The geography is going to be important. The Ammonites were related to the Moabites. Those of you who are somewhat familiar with the Bible, you'll remember the story in the book of Genesis, the sad story of Lot. You remember angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll remember that Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back longing for Sodom. You'll remember that Lot escaped to a cave with two of his daughters. Tragically, in this post-apocalyptic world, the two daughters were convinced that humanity had been wiped out. And that somehow only they managed to escape. And that it was their job to repopulate the planet Earth. And so they got the old man drunk. And then one daughter slept with their father. And then another daughter slept with their father. And you'll remember that their offspring became the descendants known as the Moabites to the south. And the Ammonites to the north. And they became sort of the perennial enemies, if you will, of Israel and Judah. As a matter of fact, when the northern kingdom of Assyria, when the kingdom of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., the Ammonites took the province of Gad. Now, I don't have a map up that shows the tribal distribution of the people of Israel, but Gad was um, initially apportioned the area that was occupied by the Ammonites. The Ammonites took the province of Gad, and Gad, by the way, means good fortune, and the other cities as if the Jews would never return. So the northern kingdom of Israel is dispersed, and they begin to occupy these particular areas. And so when it says, has Israel no sons? The descendants of the Transjordan and the Transjordan is all of that land that you see east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. It's now known as the Transjordan. So the descendants of the Transjordan were supposed to be Gad and Reuben and one half of the tribe of Manasseh. And that's found in Joshua chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. Now, Joshua chapter 32, the tribe of Gad requests the territory of the Ammonites and Moses assigns it to them on the condition that the soldiers will help the Israelites with the conquest west of the Jordan. So when the Lord says, has Israel no sons, has he no heir? He is, in fact, reminding the people not (laughs) That Israel is is occupying the land, but they're occupying the land that belongs to the tribal groups of Israel. And so. When or why then does Milcom inherit Gad? Milcom. Can mean one of two things in the language, it means their king But it may mean Molech, who was the tribal deity for the Ammonite people. 
So Molech was the chief deity of the Ammonites. He was also called Malcolm Malik. He also possibly went by the name of Melkart. So the Ammonites believed that their god or their deity was stronger than the god of Israel and Judah. And so they're thinking the reason why we're occupying the land is because the god of Israel and the god of Judah is a weak God and our God is a strong God. But the Lord knows that one day Israel will drive the Ammonites out of the land. And so when it says, has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? In other words, he's asking the question, excuse me, what are you doing here? And then in verse two, it says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war of Rabbah. You can see the city of Rabbah there in the country of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound. Her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. Now, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Ammon in the fifth century. After the destruction of Jerusalem around 582 slash 581 B.C. Rabbah was the capital city located at the headwaters of a river called the River Jabbok. Again, some of you who are familiar with the Bible know that this is the river that Jacob crossed when he was on his way back to the promised land. And you remember the story in the book of Genesis how um, Jacob sends over the camels and the goats and the chickens, and then he sends over the wife and children that he's not too fond of. And then he sends over the wife that he really is fond of until he alone is on one side of the river Jabbok and his brother Esau is on the other side of the river. And you remember the story of how Jacob wrestles with an angel and it's it's in fact the Lord and he touches the socket of his hip and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. This was sort of a geographical dividing line, if you will, this city, Rabbah. As a matter of fact, it was 23 miles east of the Jordan. You'll remember Uriah the Hittite was killed in this city. As he was attacking Rabbah, this is the place that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 11 when David has him basically killed. David will later take the city, force the inhabitants into slavery. And the modern city of Amman, Jordan, is this city. Now, the Israeli people have never taken it back. So when will they take it back? This is a big question because I'm going to suggest to you that the geographical lines that are in the Middle East have been redrawn and redrawn and redrawn again. And then look at verse 3. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament, run to and fro by the walls. For Milcom, this is Molech, shall go into captivity with his priests and princes together. In chapter 48, verse 2, the city is also called a Moabite city. That is Heshbon. And so in chapter 48, verse 2, where it says... No more praise of Moab in Heshbon. They have devised evil against her. Why in Jeremiah chapter 48, 
Verse 2 is Heshbon in um, Moab. And then why in chapter 49, verse 3, is it in Ammon? Because it's a border city and whichever power was stronger at the time, they would capture it and claim it as their own. A modern example might be, and it, it hasn't happened recently, but imagine that San Diego and Tijuana, which is right on the California, uh, Baja California border, if for whatever reason uh, Mexico invaded the United States and seized San Diego County, would it be Mexico? Well, according to the Mexicans, it would be. And what if the Americans took it back? Would it be America? According to the Americans, it would be. This is how it was with the border city called Heshbon. So he says, Whale Heshbon for Ai is plundered. Now, this Ai is not the Ai that's mentioned in the book of Joshua. And this can become confusing because if you have Ai in the book of Joshua and you have Ai in the book of Jeremiah and they're named exactly the same thing, it can be confusing if you don't understand the geography. If I said Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, would you believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? No, he was born in Bethlehem in the Middle East. The fact that there's a Bethlehem in Pennsylvania and the fact that there's a Bethlehem in the Middle East, it probably now makes sense to you that two different geographical areas can have exactly the same name. And so this is one of those problems that we run into. So this is not the city in Joshua that's mentioned in near Bethel. Sackcloth, of course, is the clothing of lamentation and destruction. And so when it says cry, you daughters of Rabbah, this is the, the women who live in the capital city. Gird yourself with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the walls for Milcom shall go into captivity with its priests and his, and his princes together. That means everybody who's in charge of the deity. What Jeremiah is basically predicting is, guess what? Your city is going to be destroyed. It's going to be captured by the Babylons or Babylonians and you're going to be taken into captivity. And then it says, why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against us? Now, what are, is the Ammonites boast? They lived in a place that was extremely fertile. It was a fertile valley in California. There is several um, areas that are lush because you can just you can plant almost anything there and it will grow. Um, there's the San Joaquin Valley. There is uh, the, the middle portion of near Bakersfield where they have row after row of all kinds of things that that grows. And, and this was true of Amon. Um, it was a fertile valley surrounded by three mountains. Now, because it was a fertile valley surrounded by three mountains, it seemed again that it was almost impregnable and secure. But their secure position would not stop the advancing armies of Babylon. And so that's part of the point. The Lord has promised and pronounced judgment. Nothing is going to stop that judgment. Nothing the people of Ammon trusted could stop the invasion. Now, remember what they were trusting. They were trusting in their security. They were trusting in their deity. 
The Lord basically says, guess what? Your security is going to be removed and your deity is going to be seized and then taken captive, if you will. And then all of the people who serve the deity. And now when it says your flowing valley, I'm going to suggest to you that it seems to be flowing with the blood of the people who have been killed in the coming invasion by the Babylonian army. And in verse five, it says, behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts from all those who are around you. You shall be driven out everyone headlong and no one will gather those who wander off. The implication being when the invasion begins and the the place starts to be taken over, fear is going to grip them. People are remember, it's a valley surrounded by three mountains and the people are going to begin to panic. They thought that they were going to be secure. They thought that geography would offer them some security. They thought that their deity would offer them some security, but they're going to be proven wrong. And then it says, but afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon says the Lord in the prophecy. Jeremiah includes the reason for punishment in verse one and then the results of the punishment in verses two through five. And then he gives this word of reassurance. But afterward, I will bring the captives of the people of Ammon back. The goodness and the mercy of God is interjected in the prophecy. In other words, remember, this is all future when Jeremiah is pronouncing it. But he's trying to give the people hope. And by the way, a partial fulfillment seems to have taken place under the reign of Cyrus, who's the Persian king. You'll remember that Babylon will take over. Babylon will rule for a little while. But then the Babylonian government will topple and the Persian government will receive the ascendancy. When the Persians get in control Some of the Jews will return to the land, but also some of the Ammonites will return to their land in a partial fulfillment. But I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to suggest to you that the complete fulfillment of this prophecy is yet to take place. So when will it take place? Well, I'm going to again suggest to you that in the coming kingdom of the Messiah, the geographical boundaries are going to be profoundly different. There's a more important question that you should probably ask. Why does God restore the people of Ammon? What is it about that people group that's different from these other people groups where there's a promise of restoration for some, but not a promise of restoration for the others? Is it because of their own merits? Is it because of the way that they dealt with Israel in the past? Is it because of the close kinship? Is it because of the presence or the absence of peace? And by the way, what I would point out to you in the modern kingdom of Jordan, they have been the most peaceful of all of Israel's neighbors. They have provided the most refuge for displaced people. So how are we to think about this? Well, however we're supposed to think about it, The glories of Israel will be awakened and invigorated when the Messiah comes, when Jesus sits on the throne of his father, David. You'll remember that salvation is of the Jews. Now we come to the next message, the Lord's message to Edom in verses seven through twenty two. 
Now you see the kingdom of Ammon and then you see the kingdom of Moab and you see the kingdom of Edom. If you go south, 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 now he's seeing it a little bit more. You can see the rock city of Petra, the kingdom of Judah to the north, the Nabataeans to the right, if you will, or to the east. So we're going to read now the Lord's message to Edom, beginning in verse 7. It says, against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee from, uh, flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup of assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste and a curse. And all of its cities shall be perpetual waste. And I'm going to pause right there for just a moment. In verse seven, when it says against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts. That kingdom, the kingdom of the Edomites, these were the descendants of Esau. And remember, Esau means red. And you'll remember that Esau was Jacob's older brother. Remember, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son, had sons named Esau and Jacob. They were twins. And you remember the story of how one was going to be blessed. Esau neglected his birthright and his blessing was given to his brother Jacob in Genesis 25, 19 through 34. If you remember in your Bible reading, well, didn't Jacob steal the birthright? You would be correct. Did Jacob use treachery and cunning and did he cheat his brother out of his birthright? The answer is yes. But make no mistake about it. The Bible also says that Esau neglected his birthright and didn't care for it, if you will. So the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. The Edomites remained distant from their cousins, the Jews, but they joined them in their fight against the Babylonians. Now, when you look at these three different people groups, the people of Ammon or Ammon, the people of Moab and the people of Edom, which do you suppose were closest to the Jews? Well, if you said the Edomites, you would be correct. Now, the book of Obadiah, by the way, has as its theme God's judgment on Edom. And it mirrors the prophetic pronouncements of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, when we look at this particular passage and we read the one book of Obadiah, 
There are so many similarities that some scholars have speculated that either Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah or Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah. But we don't know which because we have no idea when Obadiah was written. We have some idea, obviously, when um, Jeremiah was written. But in the book of Obadiah, a prophecy is given of the future possession of Edom by the Jewish people, which I think is very, very interesting. Now, the people of Edom had a reputation of profound wisdom and insight. In Job chapter 2, verse 11, you'll remember that when Job receives all of his painful problems, all of the afflictions that fall upon him, he has counselors that come and minister to him. And one of those counselors was an Edomite. But here it becomes part of the point. The smartest people in the world, the people with the most wisdom and insight, are not able to get out of this predicament that's coming upon the people of Edom. And what is the predicament that's coming upon them? Again, the same problem that happened to Judah and Jerusalem. It's the Babylonian invasion. The Babylonian invasion is going to come and no matter what plan, no matter what strategy, they're not going to be able to hinder the armies of Babylon. They're not going to be able to prevent the invasion. So what does that have to do with you and me? Well, does God have plans and purposes? Does God have plans for the present and does God have plans for the future? And by the way, whatever God has assigned for you, And whatever God has assigned to the nation, United States of America, and whatever God has assigned to the planet Earth, will he bring it to pass? That's what you've learned. If you've learned nothing else from the book of Jeremiah, you know that God is in control. He's in control of the universe. He's in control of the past. He's in control of the present. He's going to control the future. If God has declared judgment... On the United States of America, who can stop it? That's the right answer. Nobody. Nobody. So the issue isn't whether or not we can stop judgment. What can we stop? What are we in charge of? What do we get to have control over? Now, remember what I told you, that these prophecies are given so that the people listening to the prophecy will go, hey, God's going to do something special and maybe we should pay attention. Maybe we should be make plans to put ourselves in a position where we can be used by God and be useful to God. And so here becomes the point. The smartest people in the world are not going to be able to devise a plan or a strategy that's going to hinder the invasion. Look at verse eight. Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths of inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him. In this particular instance, Esau means the land of Edom. It's the personification of Esau. Remember, Judah is called Judah after one of the tribal members of Judah. It's not the person Judah, it's the place Judah. And it's not the person Esau. Esau becomes the personification of this nation group. And Dedan, okay, if it's true that Esau was under a curse or cursed by God for his refusal to embrace the Lord. It would appear that his punishment 
was persisted in his offspring. A little clue is given to us in the book of Hebrews. And you might just want to turn there real quick to the book of Hebrews. If you get to James, you've gone too far. But go to Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, we read this interesting passage. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then look down at verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, does the Bible say that Esau was very upset that his brother had cheated him? Yes. Did he even cry? Yes. Did he have an emotional response? Yes. But there was no spiritual change. And so then it says, oh, inhabitants of Dedan. Dedan was a descendant of Ham related to Abraham who gave the territory that name. And I'm going to suggest to you that it means the southern part of Edom. If you look at that whole area, if you go to the southern part, that's also um, the area called Dedan. And then in verse 9, if grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they had enough? The idea being it isn't going to be a war where they're going to hit you and they're going to take some stuff, but you're going to be left with enough provision to carry on. The reality is it's going to be terrible. Verse 10, but I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places. If you're wondering where the secret place is. Use your imagination. The secret place is that area that modest people keep covered under all circumstances. And he shall not be able to hide himself. The idea is stripped. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. And so it becomes a metaphor for a complete harvest where nothing is left. We have an expression when when people come in, have you ever heard someone say, and they picked them clean? Picked clean means nothing left. Some have suggested that Edom ceased to exist. And I'm going to suggest to you that after the Babylonians came, and then the Persians came, and then the Greeks came, and then the Romans came, there was still... A little group of people left in Edom. As a matter of fact, there was a very famous person who hailed his ancestry from Edom. His name was Herod the Great. And all of his offspring were called Edomites. Now, remember, Herod himself is half Jewish and half Edomite. But if you were to ask and answer the question, well, where are the modern Edomites today? I, I couldn't point with certainty and say that person is an Edomite. But so when it says they cease to exist, there seems to be some indication that the people group disappeared 
in verse 11, leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. The whole point being mercy. In other words, even in the midst of the judgment, God cares about the orphans. God cares about the widows. And so even in these circumstances, there's this invitation to trust the Lord. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup of assuredly drunk. And are you the ones who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. And remember what drinking the cup is. It's a metaphor in the Bible that speaks of judgment. Remember Jesus himself at the Last Supper when he passes the cup and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting uh, covenant. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the cup of iniquity coming to its brim, starting to spill over. And so here, this reoccurring metaphor is a metaphor which means that they will have to be judged and they will drink the last drop of judgment. And they drink the cup of judgment because of their pride and their rebellion against the Lord. But again, here is part of the the thinking that's going on. The kingdom of Edom is saying, well, we saw what you did to Judah and we saw what you did to Jerusalem and we saw what happened to um, the northern kingdom. We saw what happened to Moab. We saw what happened to Ammon. But guess what? We're going to be spared judgment. What is it about us? What is it about us? That we see people dying all around us because of the consequences of sin. But we think that for some reason we will be the one person who gets away with it. Is that smart thinking? That is not smart thinking. And so the Jews had a covenant with God. But not the surrounding nations. They had a covenant with God and they were going to have to bear the consequences for failing to embrace the covenant. Now, but what does this mean for you and me? If you as Christians know that there's a God who judges rightly, does that make your unbelieving family and friends? Are they off the hook because they're not believers? They don't go to church. They don't have a Bible. So God isn't going to deal with their sin. What do you think the answer is? No, God is going to deal with their sin. Well, what if they don't believe in sin? And what if they don't believe in God? And what if they don't even care about stuff? Does that mean that God doesn't care? Or that justice won't take place? Look what it says in verse 13. For I've sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. Note the words that is used. Desolation, reproach, waste, curse. Would you give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Looks like a thumbs down, huh? Something horrible and terrible is going to happen. And all of its cities shall be perpetual wastes. By the way, there were several ancient cities with the name Basra. It means fortress or fortified place or sheepfold. This is not the Basra in Moab from chapter 48. This site might be called Busara, which is about 20 miles southeast of the Dead Sea, about 35 miles north of Petra. And then it says, I've heard a message from the Lord and an ambassador has sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her and rise up to battle. Now think about this. 
I have heard a message from the Lord. Who's speaking? Jeremiah. And an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. But now he assumes the role of spokesperson to the nations. Gather together. Come against her. Rise up to battle. What's going to happen? Babylon is going to come. Babylon is going to invade the land. Babylon is going to destroy the land. Note, and and again, here's part of the point I think I want you to see in verse 14. I have heard a message from the Lord. Why is that important to you? Because judgment isn't coincidental. It isn't accidental. It isn't something that just sort of happened. Apparently, it is planned and purposed by God. That becomes part of the point. Judgment isn't accidental. It's the consequence of human acts and human attitudes. In verse 15, for indeed, I will make you small among nations, despised among men. And by the way, that particular portion of the world was exactly that abandoned, despised, neglected. Verse 16, your fierceness has deceived you. The pride of your heart, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. When it says your fierceness or horror has deceived you, that means the horror that you used to inspire in others has made you deceived. In what sense? They think that they live in an impenetrable place that is absolutely impregnable and impenetrable. In the clefts of the rock, in the, in the Hebrew language, it says the clefts of Selah. And most Bible writers believe that this is a specific reference to Petra, which was called in the ancient world the rose red city, half as old as time. I've had the privilege of being being there on many separate occasions. This is a picture that I took when I came through what's called the the eye of the needle as you come to the treasury. The treasury is part of a canyon. And if you look at this platform, the stage that I'm standing on, the, the, the entryway into the treasury is half the size of this stage. So you can imagine how easily it would be to protect it. It was impenetrable. And the idea, this rock city of Petra was a part of a valley where they would literally carve whole um, palaces and and houses and stuff like that. And so um, the image is these people were living in this rock city. And by the way, it's part of modern Jordan. And the people thought Petra was invincible. The city's impossible to get to. There's two solid rock canyons. In verse 17, it says, Edom shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at its plagues. As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Now, there are people who live there now and there are people who are living in it. So how are we to think about this? Well, there was a long period of time 
from the time that the Babylonians came and destroyed the place. And then there were people in and out during the time of the Greeks and the Romans and then late into the Roman Empire. And by the time you get to the middle of the second century of the Roman Empire, it disappears. Do you realize that the rock city of Petra wasn't even discovered by the Western world again until 1812? So again, how are we to think about this? The Lord speaks of a judgment that's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, thorough, complete. And so you see these boundaries contracting, expanding, contracting. As a matter of fact, what I think I'm going to wind up doing before I finished teaching the book of Jeremiah, as we look at these prophecies and as they unfold, are you interested to know what the Bible says about future conflicts that are going to take place in the Middle East between now and the return of Jesus Christ? I think what I might do is a special teaching Maybe as soon as we we finish with Jeremiah, just on that, and then we'll go to the book of Romans, just because I think this is an important thing for you to know. And then in verse 19, look what it says. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her for who is like me, who will arraign me and who is it that shepherd who will withstand me here's the idea behold he shall come up like a lion from the flood plain of the jordan who is that the babylonian army what's the description back in the ancient days this is like the fifth century bc the river jordan was lush it was like a gigantic forest and there were wild animals including lions that roamed in this in this forest. And so the picture is like the armies of Nebuchadnezzar are going to come upon Edom like a lion coming out of a forest where near the river Jordan. In other words, imagine a person all of a sudden looks up and you see a gigantic face of a lion and its mouth is wide open and it's just a, one split second away from swallowing you whole. What do you have time to do? Just go. I'm dead. That's exactly what's talked about. Like the lion and the prey. And the prey is not not spared against the dwelling place of the strong. Who's that? The Edomites. They're living in a rock fortress. But I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? In other words, who's going to get to be? The king of Edom. Who is the Lord going to place in control of this particular place? Who is a chosen man for who is like me? In other words, the Lord is saying, I would really like to give you the kind of leadership that I myself could provide. Who will arraign me? This is the Lord's way of saying, who can haul God into court? Can you imagine Can you imagine serving God with paper saying, I'm going to sue you, God, because what you did was wrong. Here's the Lord is saying, really? Really? Do you have someone who you can send to heaven to give me a writ of appearance? Is there a court that you can construct 
where I will have to show up. That's the idea. Who will haul me into court? In verse 20, therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Teman. This is the province area of these super smart people. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places desolate. MacArthur writes, the weakest of the Chaldeans will be able to drag them away. In other words, he's saying, take the strongest person in Edom, take the weakest person in Babylon, and the weakest person will be able to draw out the strongest person. Because guess what? What I purposed will come to pass. In verse 21, the earth shakes at the noise of their fall and the cry, its noise is heard at the reed, Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, the place where Israel initially escaped captivity. You'll remember when the children of Israel left the bondage of Egypt and they passed over into the promised land. Verse 22, behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle. In other words, he's using the image of a lion pouncing. Now he's using the image of aerial assault and spread his wings over Basra, the heart of the mighty men of Edom in that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. The idea is of a pregnant woman who's in so much pain. All she can think about is the fact that her baby is coming. That's pretty frightened. And again, we can take comfort that even in judgment, God remembers mercy in Habakkuk chapter three, verse two. He's willing to show compassion to widows and orphans. Jeremiah 49, verse 11, that we've already seen. But Edom's pride insisted on judgment, as it always does. There's two more messages. The message to Damascus and the message to Kedar and Hatzor and the Arab tribes. But that's going to have to wait for next week. So, unfortunately, we only got through two messages. Sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> Lord, when we look at these surrounding nations, who they are, what they did, where they wound up. And Lord, then we see the nations in the present. Lord, we know that it can be frustrating. What does the past have to do with the present? Well, Lord, in both the past and the present, people have either encouraged your people or discouraged them persecuted them or helped them. And Heavenly Father, we know that there really are two kinds of nations. Those that want to honor you and those that don't want to honor you. Those that want to glorify you and those that don't want to glorify you. And Heavenly Father, we know that nations honor you and glorify you in imperfect and inconsistent ways. But, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who honor you. Lord, we pray that we would be a people whose God is the Lord. Lord, we pray that we would care about the things that you care about. Even as we sang earlier, break my heart for what breaks yours. And, Heavenly Father, you are still interested in justice. You are still interested in mercy. 
Lord, the words of the prophet remain ringing in our ears. You've shown us what is good and what the Lord requires of us. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with you. And Lord, we pray that mercy, humility, justice would be things that we value. And again, Lord, we pray for the people of the Middle East, even now, Father. Lord, we know that they're on the precipice of a conflagration that could go up any moment. But Lord, we know that you care about the Jewish people and we know that you care about the Arab peoples and we know that you care for all of the peoples in that land and that there has to be a way that they can hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. Lord, we know that we're living in a, in a day of grace and we know that that grace will soon, the day of grace will soon pass and the day of judgment will soon come. Lord, we know that you spoke to the nations and told them what the future holds. And Heavenly Father, we know that you have once again spoken to the nations in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You've spoken to the nations concerning a judgment that's going to come to pass in the book of Revelation. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would pay, pay heed and, and pay close attention to what you have promised in the future for the nations that surround Israel. And so again, Lord, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a deep desire to know the truth about the future so that we could cooperate with your Holy Spirit in the plan that you have. In Jesus' name, amen.